Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is an RNZ podcast. He knew as soon as that evidence was given that, that he was sunk, he said you could have thrown a grenade into the courtroom and it would have had less effect on the jury. Um, he said he looked at the jurors' faces and knew that he was a goner. Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan from the Daily Afternoons program on RNZ, and this is Crimes NZ, a podcast series where I talk with people who are connected in some way or other with serious crimes that have happened in this country. Today, it's investigative journalist Donna Chisholm, who's talking to me about the case of the Swedish tourists, Urban Hoglin and Heidi Parkinen, who both went missing during a tramping trip in Coromandel in 1989. This was the first tourist killing, I think, since Jennifer Beard in 1969. So it was a 20-year gap when we really were regarded as a very safe place for tourists. Um, so it was very unusual. But after that, there was actually a string of young women who were killed right up to, you know, Grace Mullane in recent times. Um, and I recall there was a lot of concern about New Zealand's um, international reputation as a mm. safe place to visit. Um, this made headlines internationally, but, you know, particularly in Sweden. Um, so it was a mystery because they were missing. Uh, so not only was it a who done it, if anyone had done it, but where are they? Mm. Um, and also, they were a couple that made it unusual, and they were almost ethereally beautiful. <laughs> this couple, so you know, their pictures on the front page just you know sprang out at you really. T- tell us about them, Urban and Heidi. Well, um, Heidi was twenty one, Urban was twenty three. Uh, they'd become engaged a couple of years before that. Um, they had grown up together in the, well, not together, but they'd grown up in the same village, Storfors, which was a couple of hundred k's west of Stockholm. They'd actually been to the same school together, but they only got together after that uh, when they were both working in the same supermarket. Um, Heidi was on the cosmetics counter. I'm not exactly sure where Urban um, was working in that store, but um, Heidi wanted to be a kindy teacher. Urban had done military training. He was a real outdoorsman, incredibly fit. Um, Urban's older brother, Johnny, was in fact a a gold medalist at the Winter Olympics in speed skating. So um, Urban was tall, fit, athletic. He wouldn't have been a pushover for anybody. Um, By the time they went missing in April 1989, they'd been here for four months. They'd arrived in December 88, and obviously attracted to New Zealand by the the prospect of some, you know, time in the great outdoors. So before we talk about David Tamahiri, let's listen to an excerpt from Morning Report. This is a month later, a month after they um, were reported missing, 29th of May, 1989, and this comes courtesy of Ngatanga Sound and Vision, the Sound Archives. 
Here's Detective Senior Sergeant Tony Boucher uh, talking about the investigation underway. This couple, uh, Urban and Heidi, were a pretty distinctive sort of couple. Uh, our information is that Heidi was a very attractive woman uh, who once met would not be forgotten. We are getting a large number of calls uh, from people who have met them or seem to think they have met them. And uh, the vehicle that they were driving, a, a white four-wheel drive Subaru with very heavy bull bars on the front, was also a reasonably distinctive vehicle, and we're getting calls on that. But the key to it really lies with the public and sightings by the public of the pair. If anyone's memories are triggered by this discussion this morning, how do they get in touch with you? With they phone? can just get hold of their local police station. Uh, we are sending out all station broadcasts, keeping the stations around the country advised. It's a, um, a particularly sad case, a young engaged couple who had come out here to enjoy the great outdoors and they've gone missing for absolutely no reason whatsoever. Who sounded the alarm, by the way, Donna? It was their family back in Sweden when they didn't arrive home as planned in May. Um, the last time they were seen in New Zealand was April the 8th and they had been due to leave um, on April the 20th, so 12 days later, and they were going home via a holiday in the Cook Islands. So when they didn't turn up in May, I think mid-May, the family alerted the police. And when does David Tamahere enter the picture? Well, he was in the area having gone bush, um, having absconded on bail before he was due to be sentenced on a charge of rape that he'd committed in 1986. So he was about to be sentenced. He told his wife and kids that he didn't want to go to jail. <laughs> so he took off. He went bush in the Coromandel, which was an area he knew well. Um, he was 35 at the time. He'd already served a sentence for manslaughter. Um, so he was very familiar with the area, very familiar with the bush. He was living off the land, killing animals, uh, selling um, possum skins, um, eating kaimoana and, you know, hunting deer, etc. Um, so his regular kind of circuit around the Coromandel was from north, from the, um, between Coromandel and Whitianga up that way, down as far as Matamata. And in his version of events, he was on his way to Matamata via uh camping at Crosby's hut um, when he came across the car that the Swedes had left on Tararu Creek Road in Thames, which was the entry to a walking track up to Crosby's. So he came across their car and he's never deviated from this uh, version of events that he saw the car it was filled with all their camping gear, etc. Um, he said he felt the exhaust and it was warm, so they wouldn't be back for a while. And so he broke in with some fencing wire and um, hot-wired the car and, and uh, left with it. And he, his view is that he had nothing further to do with the Swedes. So that's his version. Yeah. He must be looking like a pretty good suspect, though. Uh, uh... Someone who's been convicted of manslaughter oh. and rape who happened to be in the area and has their car. Absolutely. And you can imagine why when he did come under the radar of the police that they weren't going to let him go anytime soon. I mean, he was he just ticked all their boxes. <laughs> so if you, if you were going to fit somebody up, which is what I believe they did, um, he was a perfect candidate. <laughs> 
and was there some evidence that he had been seen with a blonde woman as well? Well, this is where it gets very contentious. Um, there were two trampers called Mel North and uh, John Cassidy, <coughs> Cassidy, who said they saw a person who they later identified as Tamahiri with a woman who looked like Heidi at Crosby's clearing uh, on the, I think it was the 8th, Saturday, the 8th of April. And um, he was putting up a tent. This person they identified as Tamahiri was putting up a tent. They thought the woman looked very uncomfortable in his uh, company. A couple of problems with their evidence was that um, they described him as having no moustache or only a small moustache. David's Tamahiri's moustache was very bushy. Um, they only identified him after a being shown lots of mugshots of David uh, by the police, and only the day after they were told to attend the courthouse where Tamahiri was being. Uh, charged with theft of the Swede's car. So they, Tamahiri was paraded in handcuffs uh, in front of the media and more particularly in front of Norfin Cassidy. And it was after that sighting that they confirmed that, yes, this was, in their view, this was uh, Tamahiri. But, you know, Tamahiri himself says one of them, I can't remember if it was Cassidy or North, said that he identified him from his rolling gait. And David told me that he doesn't have a rolling gait. The only time that his gait looks rolling is if you watch him in slow motion in the video that was played over and over again on TV. Mm. So, you know, he, he thinks that's where they, you know, got their ID from. And, and certainly um, the evidence of this identification by these trampers was initially ruled out by the trial judge because he said it was so tainted by the police abuse of evidential procedure that it was dangerous to admit. Now, uh, that was taken to the Court of Appeal before the trial and the Court of Appeal overruled it uh, and it was allowed in and it became a central plank of the prosecution case. What other evidence was presented in the trial? Well, a lot of it has subsequently fallen over, but the real um, sinker, as far as uh, Tamahiri was concerned, was the three secret witnesses, the jailhouse snitches, uh, secret witness A, B and C, who claimed that uh, he had told them different versions of how he had uh, murdered and then disposed of uh, the, the two. Now, David said... He knew as soon as that evidence was given that, that he was sunk, he said you could have thrown a grenade into the courtroom and it would have had less effect on the jury. Um, he said he looked at the jurors' faces and knew that he was a goner. Mm. And indeed, you know, one of the jurors was so ill after hearing that evidence that the court had to be adjourned for a while. So um, so the secret witness C was probably the most damning. He he testified that Tamahiri told him that he tied Herb onto a tree and sexually assaulted Heidi. He said that um, Tamahiri had said that he was sprung by the trampers, which was a convenient um, <laughs> piece of testimony because yeah. it backed up the trampers. You know, I mean, and if, if the police plant that information with the secret witness and say, well, it would be helpful if you said this. Um, and secret witness C also said that uh, Tammy Harry had told him that he'd given his son uh, Urban's watch. 
uh, he also said that he'd disposed of their bodies at sea. Um, now, Tamahiri himself says that he did talk about the missing Swedes in prison, but he certainly didn't confess to killing them. He said he planted different stories about them, for example, where he thought the police should look. And he, he gave, he fed different stories, he says, to different inmates. He said, because if the police then come back to him with X and Y information, he then knows exactly who the snitch is. <laughs> so hmm. David wasn't stupid. You know, he, he, would he confess randomly to three people he doesn't know in jail? Never in a million years. You know, he, he's not naive. He's not stupid. And there's no way on earth that he would have said this. Did any of the witnesses later recant or change their story? Oh, yes. Well, secret witness C um, recanted. <laughs> he recanted first, I think, in 95 and said he lied. And then he recanted his recanting and said, no, he recanted because he was threatened. And then uh, he was subsequently, and this is another part of the story, charged with perjury. Uh, so the, the court found that he did actually lie. Uh, in his evidence about uh, Tamahiri. So, you know, it really does back up the very dodgy nature of when jailhouse informants are used. I mean, snitches are there when the evidence, the other evidence isn't enough. You know, they've been famously used in miscarriages of justice cases. Arthur Allen Thomas, they were used, Tana Pora, um, and other cases that I can think of, you know, Mark Lundy, Scott Watson... The problem with that evidence is that their motive is their own saving their own skin. You know, they get reduced prison time or some other sort of deal from the police. Secret witness C said um, he'd been offered up to a hundred thousand uh, by the police. Now, he, you know, you can't believe a word he says, um, but they have a very strong motive to lie. Any other evidence of interest before we look at the uh, the verdict in that initial trial? Um, well, I mean, obviously, you've got David having stolen the car. Um, so, you you know, and he's under an assumed name at the lodgings where he's staying in uh, Thames. And he's later, the breakthrough in the case came after he drove some tourists, one of whom was another Swedish tourist, around in the car to, up to Coromandel um, the day after he's stole the car so so the the guy in Sweden when he gets back and he sees that um, this is the car when it's publicised because it had been abandoned in Mount Eden I think it had been David took drove it up to Auckland abandoned it at the railway station it was then stolen again and then abandoned in Mount Eden but the, the Swedish guy he'd driven around the district identified the car and said that the guy who drove them was a guy called Pat Kelly staying at the Sunkist Lodge. Now, Pat Kelly was a, the name of a union leader at the time, and mm. David used to use his name. And he, um, so police then tracked all the phone calls at the Sunkist Lodge um, and found one that this Pat Kelly had made to uh, David Tamahiri's wife's house. <laughs> so it was David was calling Chris, his wife. Um, and the police then descended on Chris's home and found items of the Swedes' belongings which um, from the car that he'd stolen. So, you know, it was all about to go very bad for him yeah. at that point. 
And so he was convicted in 1990 of the murders. This is some more audio from Morning Report at the time uh, from the team at Ngātaonga. And this is Detective Inspector John Hughes speaking after the trial on the 6th of December. The searches have been ongoing. Um, the search and rescue people on the Coromandel have never ceased going back up into the bush there and carrying out their own searches from time to time. This will go on, I'm sure. Uh, two weekends ago, we spent a, a full day down there searching a, a particular area that a pig hunter had some uh, reservations about. OK, so they kept searching and they later found Hoglund's body. Did that change things? Should have, uh, but it huh. didn't really. <laughs> Um, it was found, yeah, October 1991, pig hunters found his remains. Key, two key points, it was 70 kilometres away from where the Crown had said that the murders took place near wow. Crosby's. On the other side of the, you know, on the other side near, um, at, um, I can't remember the name of the road now, but it was, yeah, right on the other side. On the west and, coast of the Coromandel. Yeah, right ac- across um Parakohai Valley, it was, I think. Um, mm. So, the yeah, right across the other side um, yeah. from Thames. Uh-huh. I'm just okay. looking at him in the map. Yeah, of my maybe, mind. maybe it's East Coast, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's East Coast, yeah, because mm. he was more Thames way, so it was on the other side, East. So, um, the, but the other crucial point was the watch was still on his wrist, um, oh. Urban Hogland's wrist. So, that was a key, two key things, not in the place where they said it happened. And he, and he had the watch, so he can't have given it to his son. So at that point, um, David's defence team takes it back to the Court of Appeal and said, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, time to reconsider this because this is two major parts of the Crown case. Now, it should have led to a retrial at that point, but the Appeal Court said it was impossible to know how important the watch evidence was in the minds of the jury. So the Court of Appeal in those days wasn't covering itself in glory. Um, It seemed to be in the business of justifying um, or upholding dodgy convictions rather than allowing anyone to take another look at them. I mean, this was the same, exactly the same time when um, David Doherty's Court of Appeal thing was happening. Um, And it was the same sort of thing. Let's uphold at whatever cost and this yeah. should have led to a retrial at that point when did you get involved by the way well um david tamahi was at that time well after the court of appeal so in the mid 90s uh, murray gibson who was david doherty's lawyer took over david tamahi's case and so because i knew Murray. Uh, Murray was always very keen for me to get involved in uh, David Tumahiri's case because he was convinced this was a miscarriage of justice from the mm. start. But I was donkey deep in David, the other David's case at that time. And I, I thought we were having a hard enough struggle with a guy who had uh, proof that he didn't do it in the form of DNA evidence. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I looked at David Tamahiri in his form and, and said to Murray, look, I just can't see how you're going to get the public on side with this one. I, I actually said, look, good luck with it. But, you know, I don't, I don't, I can't invest another 10 years of my life in that. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, but at some stage, obviously, you took it up. 
Well, yeah, I mean, Murray's pretty, um, <laughs> he doesn't give up. Um, and he, he, he kept raising it and kept raising it. And then, of course, um, Arthur Taylor got involved by taking secret witness C to, to court. I mean, I had done stories over the years when it went to the UN in um, 2000. I, I did stories then. I got to know his family a bit when I did another story about their incredible loyalty to him and their belief in his innocence. So I had dabbled in and out, but it wasn't, I hadn't kind of campaigned for him. Um, but when the the secret witness C was charged with perjury, I saw the opportunity to take a really um, in-depth look at the case, and that was in 2017. So I spent a lot of time then digging a bit deeper into it, and, and it was deeply disconcerting. So Urban Hogland's body was found, as we discussed. What about Heidi Parkinson's? Yeah, no sign. Um, yeah, a, a total mystery. Because obviously when Urban's body was found, there was a lot of um, effort put in searching around that area. Um, but nothing nothing turned up. And there was a, a couple of years ago, there was a, a guy who found a, a couple of bags of clothes that he thought might have been um, belonged to her. But... I don't think they were ever they weren't ever identified by her family as as being hers. So there's you know ongoing little hints, but nothing ever, no sign. Uh, what about is this what you were referring to? This guy Graham Pierce uh, who found something? No, no, that he found um, this. The clothes that I was just referring to were found only a matter of I don't know, eight ten years ago. More recently, Graham Pierce um, found Heidi's jacket in the bush in July 1989, and this was just after the original manhunt had been called off, so it, it regenerated it. But why I think Graham Pierce was interesting, and why I angled my North and South story on him, was because he typified the sort of um, really profound uh, impact that the case had had on many, many locals who'd been involved in the search. He was involved in the search for, for months, and but he kept at it, you know, months months later going up and down that track and around into the bush. He was, he was just haunted by the fact that they hadn't found either of them at that stage. And he and his wife later, you know, took in backpackers rather than have them camping in the area because they, they were just um, devastated by it, really. So do you, Donna, having studied the case, think that David Tamahiri did it? I can't say that. Um, I can't say that with a certainty that I could say that about David Doherty. However, I, I certainly You couldn't feel... say with certainty... You, sorry, you couldn't say with certainty that he didn't do it as you could with David Doherty. No, I couldn't say that. However, what I can say with certainty is that there isn't sufficient evidence, mm. in my view, to sustain his conviction. Uh, there just isn't. I mean, I don't know who did it, and I can't, there isn't that sort of smoking gun mm. uh, to say to point to somebody else or to prove that David didn't do it. But it, if David Tamahiri didn't do it, you know, he, there's no proof of innocence is very difficult <laughs> when you've got no bodies mm. at the time. I mean, David Doherty had had DNA evidence. David Tamahiri doesn't have that. But I, you know, I'm absolutely convinced that there is not the evidence beyond reasonable doubt that he did it. How was Iban Hogland killed? Did, uh, did his body have any well, clues? Yeah, he 
well, it certainly wasn't, as the secret witnesses said, with his head stoved in, because um, his skull was intact. But there was evidence of um, sort of knife wounds on the back of his neck, which they said um, suggested that there had been attempt to behead him. So the theory was that he had been attacked with a knife or a tomahawk or something like like that, but I think a knife because there was a an a indent on the on the skeleton, but there was only skeleton, so you know that's all we had to go come and go on. So what are this latest news then uh, that this court of appeal uh, 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 appeal uh, has been granted or has been referred back to the court of appeal? Yeah, it's been referred back and. Um, I mean, I think that's a given how rarely these cases are referred back. Um, the Royal Prerogative of Mercy, which Murray Gibson won for both Davids, in fact, they're only successful about 9% of the time. So less than one in 10 go back. So that's pretty rare uh, to, to get another look at it. Um, so what are the options? I suppose they're not going to, in my view, they can't order another trial of David Tamahiri because there's absolutely no point. He served his full sentence and more. So why would you... The, the, there's nothing to be gained. So there is precedent for the Court of Appeal, um, I'm not sure in murder cases, but certainly in other cases, for the court to quash the convictions and not order a retrial if they feel that there isn't sufficient evidence and enough planks of the circumstantial case against Tamahiri had been destroyed, which which is true. I mean, three three or four of the main pieces of evidence have gone. So what do you think will happen? Well, I'm hoping that the convictions will be quashed. Um, I'm, th that's what I... I mean, that's what the reason is why you would go back to this higher court again to get uh, his name cleared, actually. Um, but, you know, I think that's the only only thing. Either they will um, uphold the convictions for whatever reasons or they will have to quash them. And I, I just can't see them ordering a retrial. <laughs> he is presumably out of prison now. Yes, he came out in 2010. Um and he had open heart surgery after that. Uh, I think he's a lot, looks a lot healthier now than when he did when he came out. Um, so, yeah, he's he's still with Chris and living a quiet life uh, in West Auckland. What sort of impact has the case had on you, Donna? Um, I think it just reinforces my concerns about conduct of the police, particularly in those days, um, their behaviour was really egregious. And you had that team of uh, John Rex Hughes and David Morris, the same pair that were involved in Arthur Allen Thomas. You know, you can imagine that when a character like Tamahiri comes along, um, the evidence is always going to be made to fit. But um, there's no excuse for that. Um, and that has got to be strenuously um, <laughs> uh, challenged at every turn. And, you know, all credit to Murray for actually persevering with this case for 20-odd years. It's sort of impossible to look at someone and know if they're guilty or not, but what did you make of his personality in general? Yeah, I, I actually liked him. You know, he, he, he was a very... He, he weighed you up very intensely, so he 
he didn't. He, he he had a feeling of deep distrust about everybody, uh, in everybody about him. But that said, he had a lovely sense of humour. He he told tales, you know, against himself. He had he could laugh against himself. He didn't bear grudges. He didn't he didn't hold any grudges against the police, for example. He he his beef was with the court of appeal. He said the police will always do what they're going to do. Um, so he's a good raconteur. You know, he he would tell me things like. When he's trying to make a good impression, I thought, he would tell me things I didn't know that he'd done, like blowing up a guy's car, and you think, is he just pulling my leg? Or, or it's a strange thing to say when you want when you want to make the best of yourself. So I, I found him very easy to talk to, very easy to get along with, but he had an air of, you know, I don't trust you, and I might, I might string a, a yarn to see if you'll take the bait or not. You've been listening to Crimes NZ. There are more episodes of the series on the RNZ podcast page or Apple, Spotify, in fact, wherever you find your favourite podcasts. Now, while you're on the RNZ podcast page, look for Black Sheep. That's an award-winning podcast series from RNZ, and there are loads of other great podcasts there too. I'm Jesse Mulligan. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.